so grateful that you are all here. We're grateful um, just for this time and this season of Advent for us to share in the joy of the season and um, the peace of Christ. Well, if you have never celebrated Advent before, Advent marks the first event in the Christian calendar. So a lot of churches and traditions have kind of moved away from the Christian calendar, but we actually kind of want to lean into it. For the Christian calendar starts with Advent. It celebrates the anticipation of Christmas Day. Then we look towards Christmas in which God becomes an infant, in which he becomes Emmanuel, God with us. Then we celebrate Epiphany, This celebration of the moment in which the kings come from all over and they come to the feet of a baby and we celebrate that the goodness of God, the gospel of Jesus has gone beyond the boundaries of Israel and has come to the Gentile people. Then in Lent, we humble ourselves in prayer and in fasting, just like Jesus did in the wilderness. And then at Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of our King, that our Jesus robbed the grave and he invites us into new life. And then at Pentecost, we celebrate the birth of the church. We follow the church calendar. We submit ourselves to the rhythm of this story because it leads us through the story of Jesus year over year. We want to, every single year of our life, submit ourselves to walking in the way of Jesus and in his path and in his love. And so Advent is the beginning of that celebration in which, like the Israelites, we pause and we wait. We're waiting for our king to come. And uh, the church calendar leads us through that. In this season of Advent, Advent is a Latin term that means arrival. And it is the first four Sundays in between Thanksgiving and Christmas in which we really ponder these things of what it means for God to become man. So the first Sunday, which was last week, we took it off because of the Thanksgiving holiday, we would have pondered hope. This idea that in Jesus we have hope, not just for salvation, but a hope for our future that we know our God is writing history and that ultimately all things will come together. Today we will ponder the meaning of peace, that he is the prince of peace. Next week we will talk about joy and the defiant joy that comes in the form of a little baby. And then the final week we will contemplate what it means for us to be a loving community. That for God so loved the world, that he loved his creation, so much so that he enters it. We take four weeks to ponder what it means that God become, became man, that he became a child and dwelt amongst us. And so today we ponder peace and what it means for God to come near to us. And so we've already lit the hope candle, but today we will light the peace candle. And I'm praying that a fire isn't started. Um, But as I do this, I want to pray 
over this moment and over this season. Father, as we light the candle of peace, may the peace of Christ reign in our heart. May the peace of Christ become known in our world through your church. May war, conflict, violence, brokenness, manipulation, chaos be put to rest in your reign. God, we ask that the peace of Christ be with us today. It's in the name of your Son who came to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Candles. Fire. Um, so as we're, we're talking, I mentioned the themes of hope, peace, joy, and love. And these are common terms for the holiday season. Uh, even in the short description of Advent, though, I think it's abundantly clear that the popular notion of the holiday season is something very different than what we observe in Advent. I say the phrase holiday peace, and it conjures up a particular setting in your mind. Uh, Cassie is quite the hallmark fiend. And whenever I say holiday peace, I'm picturing roaring fire, massive Christmas trees, overflowing presents, cookies in the oven. I'm picturing this idyllic circumstance in which it's tranquil, there's no conflict, the family's laughing, they have on ugly sweaters. It's a wonderful moment. That's what we think of when we think holiday peace. We hear it all the time from our Instagram to the grocery store, from the company email to the Christmas cards. We get that there is this particular idea of what holiday peace is. And I think even if we observe it, there's something about all of those influences coming into us that it shapes our expectation of what the holiday should be. We say peace on earth and goodwill towards men. We say these things like we hope you have a peaceful holiday and we have this certain depiction of what it is. But if we were all to think about those Hallmark movies and those Hallmark moments, we'll recognize that there's very few of us that can actually live into those things. The family laughing with the ugly Christmas sweaters and no conflict doesn't exist. You went home for Thanksgiving, I hope, you spent some time with your family, and there was probably some conflict. <laughs> I know that's not true in my family, but in your family, there's probably some moments of tension. We think about the abundance of Christmas presents, and we hope for a day in which we make enough money in which we won't have a single worry as we're filling the bottom of the tree. But the reality is that enough just simply doesn't ever come. We hope for a moment in which we have that perfect person by our side and we meet under the mistletoe and it sparks. <laughs> but the reality of holiday peace is that it isn't a reality. In many ways, it is a false sense of peace. We imagine and we hope that our Christmas season will be one of this holiday peace, but it never comes. We say peace on earth and goodwill towards men, but on December 26th, we go back to killing each other and despising our coworker and angry and frustrated. 
It's a temporary peace. It's a false peace. The holiday good feelings and the fuzzies really do not create a lasting peace that's described in the scriptures. And the season of Advent is designed to help our hearts long for a better type of peace. A peace that isn't just jolly feelings and warm and fuzzies, but is actual peace that is experienced by all humans. And as we reflect on our text today, our author Luke is anticipating a particular event that will deliver us a peace that the holiday season cannot. For the arrival of our God in the form of a baby is an event that splits history wide open. Luke goes through this depiction and this description of all the rulers that are present in the time of John. Distinct from the other gospel writers, Luke is particular in that he anchors the story of Jesus to a specific time frame, to political, a political landscape, and to geographic locations, placing this moment that we are looking at at roughly 28 to 29 CE. And Luke attaches the gospel narrative to concrete historical events for a few specific reasons. First, Luke is a historian, first and foremost. He says in Luke 1 that I am writing this to create an orderly account. That I want to write the events of Jesus' life so that the church can learn and be edified by these events. Second, he knows that history will never be the same. That when you attach the name of Jesus to concrete historical events, everything that happens after and before will be interpreted in light of that event. And in this list of regional rulers, there is an underlying contrast between the kingdoms of man and the kingdom of God. Like our own time, the age in which Jesus resides in was one marked by promises and propagandas of peace. Caesar Augustus, the ruler before Tiberius, which Tiberius is the one mentioned in this passage, so Caesar Augustus comes right before. Augustus is credited with establishing Pax Romana. You may have heard of this term before, but it is Latin for Roman peace. It's the idea that roughly 200 years before Pax Romana was established, the empire, the Roman Empire, was in constant war. And Augustus smashed and conquered his way toward a seeming peace. The empire at this time of Luke's writing was in a time of relative peace. But it was a false peace in that it was established by Rome just beating the mess out of anybody who had anything else to say. They beat their enemies into submission and called it peace. There's an ancient historian named Tacitus, Tacitus, say that 10 times, who writes, they, talking about Rome, make a wasteland and they call it peace. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was a peace built on power and subjugation. Hardly a peace at all. And Luke, 
the writer knows of his Israelite audience, his Christian audience, who are the ones bearing the weight of that subjugation, bearing the weight of the violence and the conflict that is being used in order to establish Pax Romana. And though it's different, we currently live in an era which has been called Pax Americana, emphasizing the lack of warfare on American soil since the 1940s. But we know the peace that we experience only comes at the crushing of others. This is not a foolish wish for me to experience conflict or for conflict to come to our shores, but it is a recognition that we have not come close to anything resembling peace on earth. It is our Advent reminder to long again for the peace of God. The relative stability and absence of violence in many of our lives is not necessarily to say a peace has been established. It's to say we have been insulated from it. Advent is a time for us to once again long for the peace of God. The false peace of Pax Romana and of Pax Americana are comfortable for those in power. They're comfortable for those in privilege. But it is a false peace not built on love, but on violence. And we need a madman in the desert to disrupt our status quo and to look for a new kingdom of peace. Luke 3.3, And John went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If you looked at our devotion this morning, um, it is featuring a picture called St. John the Baptist Preaching by Pretri in 1665, I believe. And John looks like an absolute wild man. And I love it. It is this voice in the desert standing against Pax Romana saying, that is a peace that is unsustainable. That is a peace built on power, violence, and subjugation. And we long for a new type of peace. In the parallel version of this, in the gospel according to Matthew, John the Baptist's message during this time of Pax Romana is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you've been around for a minute, that should sound familiar. For it is the exact same phrase that Jesus uses a chapter later in Matthew 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For those of you who have grown up in the Christian tradition, you might have heard repent and you might have flinched a bit. You might be expecting me to like, now it's time for hellfire and wrath. But the repent in the mouth of John and in the mouth of Jesus is better described as you rethink everything. For the verb that we translate into repent is metanoia, which means a changing of direction. It's this idea, and it comes with a word picture of going in one direction, you hearing a new set of news, a new event, and changing directions altogether. 
And this is the message of John, to hear the proclamation of the kingdom of God, to hear of a new form of peace, and to rethink all that we know. As Jesus and John use it, repent is to change your mind or to rethink. A rethinking that has a profound impact on your heart and on your worldview. And it's John's message that we need to rethink our embrace of the false peace. So in this time of Pax Romana or false peace, John the Baptist, this wild man in the wilderness, and Jesus of Nazareth will bring about a kingdom that is not just establishing a new type of peace in the moment, but peace forevermore. And John the Baptist stands as the forerunner to this new kingdom, reminding us of who is to come and the king that is preparing his kingdom. For our savior is a peacemaker that moves into the chaos of our world. Is the story of Christmas not about a God that so loved his world that he enters into the chaos into the violence, into the brokenness, into the political turmoil, and says, let me show you a different way. Let me change the fabric of this very world so that you can experience the goodness of God. Luke 3, 4 through 5 is quoting Isaiah 41 through 5. John the Baptist declares, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Compared to the other gospel writers, Luke offers an extended version of the Isaiah 40 quote, a passage of judgment and comfort on destruction and salvation. It is a passage that both warns and encourages. The Isaiah passage comes to a people living in Babylonian exile, questioning the very existence of God, for if this God is for Israel, how can we find ourselves here? And the author's words, Isaiah's words, are take comfort. Rejoice for the God of all creation is coming to make his home amongst his people. Everyone will see the goodness of God. It is a vision of peace and of abundance. It is a vision of a future peace on a broken world. And while the rest of this passage is about the people of God following the way of God, this quotation in particular I find really interesting because it is all about creation making a way for God. Do you remember that scene in The Lion King where Mufasa is coming through the line of animals and all the animals are like moving out of his way and they're all bowing down? Isaiah is making a similar metaphor that the very geographic elements of creation are going to bow as the Lord comes through. That the valleys that were once low will fill up. That hills and mountains will bow in reverence 
to a God that is coming to make his home amongst us. It is both a proclamation of who has come on the scene in Jesus, but it is also prophetic in that is looking towards the future and declaring that one day every fiber of creation will bow in reverence to our God. That our God is making his way into creation and everything wrong, everything broken, all evil will be set right. The peace of Christ is summarized in a Hebrew term you've probably heard before called shalom. Shalom. You've probably heard it used as a greeting. But it is basically a term meaning peace, wholeness, welfare, prosperity, absence of warfare, conflict, or violence. You, you hear peace, and oftentimes we think of peace as there's not conflict between two people, or there's not conflict between two parties. But the peace of God is a holistic welfare. It pictures this idea of a circle or a group of people and the absence of conflict between everyone in the circle. But not just everyone in the circle, but everyone and God. It is that all people are being taken care of. It is like the Garden of Eden, this paradise in which God dwelt with humanity. This is the shalom that spoke of over and over and over and over again throughout the biblical text. It is this picture of God coming to earth and dwelling with us again. In light of that, the picture of peace depicted by a Hallmark movie pales in comparison. It is a peace that sets all things right. It is a peace in which Christ is working towards justice and engages in the hard places in our world. In the prophet Isaiah, just 38 chapters before this, there's this well-known passage that um, is read around this time from Isaiah 2 particularly verses 2 through 4, and I think this has a pretty good depiction of the shalom of God. It shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow from it. And many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God, the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn the way of war anymore. What a, what a promise. That the ways of war, the ways of violence and conflict, the ways of getting ahead at the expense of another shall be unlearned. We sit 
just days after another school shooting. We sit days after um, people in Afghanistan literally starving from the conflict that's gone on over the summer. We sit days after a young man left his uh, Columbian University class and is just stabbed in the street. We stand waiting and yearning for the peace of God in which our weapons of war will be turned into gardening tools, in which we never have to learn the ways of violence again, but rather we can live into the way of God. This is the kingdom Jesus came to establish. And if you're astute, you'd recognize that Jesus came about 2,000 years ago and said kingdom hasn't been established yet. And this is a... um, concept, a term that many theologians and scholars call the already not yet kingdom. For Jesus showed us the way of his kingdom, showed us how to live in a world racked with violence through a way of peace, and that he will return again to make that fully done. Um, a kind of illustration for it, since Jacob and Alicia just got engaged, shout out to them. The engagement process is kind of an already not yet. In many ways, Jacob and Alicia have made the commitments of loving and sacrificing and committing to one another, but the full culmination of that has not come yet. They're in the in-between time, and in many ways, we live in that in-between time in which Christ has established his kingdom. He has shown us the way of peace, and now our task is to wait, to wait and to demonstrate to the world what it looks like to live in accordance with his kingdom. He chose to enter into the chaos of our world and to demonstrate a life of peace and love for all. It is in his example that we must move towards the places of pain, brokenness, tension, and conflict to be peacemakers in the communities we find ourselves in. We must reject the peace of the holiday season to see the true peace, to be reconciled in relationships and an honest restoration. As the people of God, we move towards the brokenness of our world in an effort to reveal the peace we've come to know. The image of holiday peace is one that is manufactured and sold as a false peace that ignores the problems and wraps them in red and green paper. It's not peace. It's avoidance. It's distraction. It's status quo. There's this well-known story from history. On December 25th, 1914, um, there's this moment called the Christmas Truce. It was depicted in a French movie called, uh, is it Joyeux Noël? Noël? I think it means, oh, Cassie says it's very good. I haven't seen it. Um, <laughs> where it, it demonstrates this moment during World War I where German soldiers climbed out of their foxholes and they laid down their guns in full view of the enemy. And the bombing stopped, the shots stopped ringing out, and they yelled out, Merry Christmas. 
Now, this is a very odd situation in the midst of the killing field, in the midst of no man's land. But the German soldiers kind of tentatively wandered out onto the field and realizing kind of what was happening, the allied troops started to respond in like. Pretty soon, all their arms were left on their side and they wandered into the middle of the no man's land, what was the killing field, and they began to sing Christmas songs. They began to trade rations and give each other gifts. They began to play soccer. What a beautiful picture of God invading a moment. Two that were once enemy become brothers. They share a game of soccer, share a meal, and sing of their allegiance to Christ. It's a beautiful story if it wasn't for, Jan- for December 26th. Because on December 26th, they went back to the killing. And this is the false piece of the holiday season. That unless it radically renovates our hearts, unless it transforms our world, it is temporary. It is fleeting. Imagine if the soldiers who had experienced a moment, a brotherly connection with the enemy had said, maybe we're going about this in the wrong way. Imagine if love and gentleness, kindness and humanity had ruled that moment. Instead, it was we're friends one day and the next we are back to executing one another. The peace of God invites us to have an imagination that sees beyond the he is my enemy, she is my enemy, let me conquer them. It's a peace that invites us to rethink what's possible in our world. And so as the worship team would join me back on the stage, I want to offer a few reflections before we take the blood and the bread of Jesus. I think as we reflect on the peace of Christ, our calling is to recognize our role as peacemakers. We just went through this as we went through the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be known as children of God. That peacekeeping and peacemaking are two very different tasks. We've heard this before. Peacekeeping is a commitment to status quo, to avoiding conflict and to maintaining things as they are. But peacemaking is to enter into the conflict, to enter into the brokenness and say, how can love and peace reign in this place? We live in the in-between moment. We live in between Jesus showing us how to live and him returning again. And the question is, what are we going to do in the in-between? What are we going to do in this time that we have? My encouragement for us is to commit to the ways of peacemaking. That as we look at this holiday season like John the Baptist, that we would point forward to the king that is coming and we refuse to keep the status quo, that we move towards uncomfortable situations in love, that we have the difficult conversations with family members, 
coworkers, neighbors. We identify the ways in which we can serve and love those around us. Let us move towards the brokenness of our world, knowing that our God is bringing about peace. Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.